Hello and welcome to Radio Eka. Eka is a yoga and meditation app from India. And through this podcast, we will explore the various dimensions of the body and the mind and delve deeper into understanding the true essence of yoga. The website is www.ekameditation.com. The series The Origins of Yoga is written and narrated by Swami Hamsa Yanananda Saraswati. Hari Om. Hari Om. My name is Swami Hamsa Yanananda Saraswati. Chapter 6 Tantra. Tantra originated as a distinctly Indian religious phenomenon, which in time diffused throughout many Asian cultures. Scholars have been debating for some time now about the precise origins of Tantra as a spiritual movement, a religious aesthetic, and a new way of performing yogic and ritual practice. Some believe it derived from a tribal or shamanistic practices far outside of the Brahmarial heartland of India. Our first real evidence of it dates from about 1,500 years ago in northern India, although there are cave paintings dated to up to 30,000 years old that depict certain tantric and Hindu cultural symbols. This was a turbulent time in Indian history, 1,500 years ago, for the great Gupta Empire had crumbled, leaving numerous petty warring kingdoms. The uncertainty of life was at an all-time peak. There was no sure security of home, livelihood or even one's life in India at this time. At such times, people craved modes of empowerment and it was to fill this need that Tantra, in its majoritable form, arose offering new, more effective technologies for the transformation of the mind, body and environment, such as mandalas, mudras and mantras. But though the Tantra did promise worldly advantages to some, that it was ultimately had to offer what was the greatest empowerment of all, the power to determine your own inner state regardless of external circumstance. As is becoming a familiar theme throughout this paper, we know very little about the early history of Tantra. The earliest texts and inscriptions that we may call Tantric date from around 5th to 7th century CE, appearing roughly around the same time as Kashmiri Shaivism and Buddhism. The two religions that subsequently became the dominant tantric traditions of the Middle Ages. To give a broad idea of the landscape, however, we can say that Saiva Tantra, a tradition that was essentially comprised of two primary streams, one side sometimes called the right current, is a dualistic tradition that emphasised worship of Siva without Sakti believed that liberation was solely the result of a powerful ritual initiation and subsequent 
ritual practice, that which had no wish to challenge the social norms prescribed by the Vedic priests and indeed sought their acceptance. This right-hand current of Tantra, called Siva Siddhantra, was thus highly orthodox and bears little resemblance to what people may think of as Tantra today. The left-hand current of Siva Tantra was primarily non-dualistic groups of lineages that were harder to pin down precisely because they were less homogenized and institutionalized. In general, the left current emphasized worship of female deities and fierce deities, taught that liberation could be attained in this life not merely at its end. As a result of powerful spiritual experience attained through the cultivation of insight and yoga, and finally sought to challenge the traditional social order in various ways. Such as though the empowerment of women and the performance of rituals with transgressive elements, these groups went by various different names, but eventually tended to designate themselves with the term kaula, which means from the family kaul, meaning the family of the esoteric tantric goddesses. The most far left of the schools was the the Krama, who were followers of Kali. The Krama were unequivocal, the most radical, transgressive, feminine-orientated and non-dualistic of all the Savic Tantric schools. Lastly, we should note that there are some schools in between these two mainstreams that advocate a middle path, incorporating elements of both. Let us now take a closer look at philosophy behind the left current non-dual strands of Siva Tantra and look at what they are trying to tell us, essentially at this emphasis on direct experience of the divine reality comprised of Siva and Sakti, where Siva is primarily understood as pure consciousness and the male aspect, that is ultimate ground of being Sakti, is the flowing energy making up the entire universe and the feminine aspect. In non-dual Siva Tantra, Siva and Sakti are actually considered to be one, not two, but unified, as in sacred union, but are represented as two as they correspond to two independent aspects of reality, one of which is predominantly in any given moment of experience, the two different experiences of the divine represented by Siva and Sakti are the the end static, in which we turn within, surrender everything and reach the quintessent and transcendent ground of our being and the ecstatic, in which we express our divine nature in creative, dynamic, outward-going and embodied ways. According to non-dual Siva Tantra, both modes are necessary to fully know the divine, a harmonious balance of both inwardly looking ecstasy and outward looking ecstasy is the means to true 
spiritual liberation. In terms of practice, there are essentially four aspects. Contemplation or view teachings, Gyana Yoga. Meditative ritual, yogic techniques of the supple body. And the aesthetic cultivation of the senses. And all of these are aimed at assessing and assimilating the divine energy in all things in order to achieve both worldly success and spiritual liberation. In non-dual Siva Tantra, virtually anything can become a form of spiritual practice. This idea is based on the teachings that all things are manifestations of the goddess. Therefore, the body was not seen as a locus or sin and impunity, as the usual in the case of the Pichantric traditions of yoga, but rather the vehicle to realise divine reality in and around. This led to a new emphasis on practices focusing on the body, such as asanas, which are the postures, pranayamas, which is the breath work, and mudras, which are subtle hand shapes and shapes of the body and its energies and to the detailed mapping of the structure of the universe into the body and within the body in the microcosm, which was seen as the microcosm of the whole and mirroring exactly through the lens of our human being, the macrocosm, the external world. Likewise, the experiences of the senses are not viewed as mere distractions from spirituality as they are in classical yoga, but rather as opportunities to engage in divine worship. This was a more effective approach for people living in the real world, for spiritual practice was no longer limited to ritual acts or ascetic reunification. Here, even mundane daily actions like washing the dishes and walking the dog are opportunities for experiencing the joy that flows naturally from the holistic awareness of being in full presence of yourself. The last thing to be mentioned as regards to Siva Tantra is the huge importance given to the guru and the community in this tradition. Though people were required to take initiation formally in order to have access to the guru and the scriptures, it is important to note that initiates are not required to renounce their jobs, possessions or family life as a sandhika. That is to say, the Tantra was mostly a household path. Tantra, one of the meanings for the word Tantra in Sanskrit means to weave, which means everything weaves together. A household path. The practitioners were mostly people like me and you. And they dwelt with many of the same challenges of everyday life that we face today. In taking the tantric path, they joined a kula, or community, that rejected the significance of caste, class and gender divisions. And they practiced a life-affirming spiritual discipline. In fact, we can say that the role of community is indispensable in Siva Tantra. As this is not the path we can follow alone, but only in the joyous 
company of other human beings. While Sivatantra was pan-Indian, it particularly flourished in the valley of Kashmir to the far north of Kashmir. Kashmir is on the border of the geographical regions of Central Asia and South Asia and was close to the roots of the Silk Road and thus enjoyed a kind of cosmopolitan multiculturalism not seen in the Indian subcontinent. The Kashmiri Valley is protected by mountains on three sides, creating a perfect site for the capital of the little kingdom. This ancient city, situated by a large lake, is named Srinagar, the blessed city, the goddess city. And all of the Indian religions flourish there. Furthermore, the kings of Kashmir in the early Middle Ages were patrons of philosophy and the arts, allowing for the development and sophisticated philosophical schools side by side with the flourishing liturgy traditions of plays, ornate poetry, witty social satire and aesthetics theories. It was in this environment that a crucially important post-scriptural or excedated phase of Sivatantra developed, a phase that would eventually make its influence felt all the way down to the tip of the continent. So here we broadly contrasting two chronologically successful and distinct phases of Sivatantra, that which we have already discussed above in this discourse and this later exogenical phase associated with Sivatantra Masters of Kashmir. It is this body of literature that has been called Kashmiri Shaivism, which is mainly since early 20th century and taught in the West under the same name, based all around Bhakti Yoga and singing. All of their teachings are in singing and vibrations. Tantra reached its zenith with the writings of the great Abhinava Gupta, polymath, scholar, ascetic, poet and tantric master, who lived around 975 to 1025 CE. After about 1200 CE, the classical period of Tantra came to an end and the tradition began its decline. However, uh, many of the core ideas and practices survived in the form of Hatha Yoga and itself forms the basis of modern postural yoga and thus we can see the trace and direct link between modern yoga and ancient Tantra. And as we know, the Tantrika practices that uh, I teach within the, the lineage that I teach from that I've been with for over 25 years now, have practices that go back as far as the Upanishads. Some of the uh, quotes that I use within my own training have come through uh, this specific lineage to me, which has been orally taught to me. We were not allowed to take notes when I was a student 25 years ago. Some of those things are almost exactly the same 
as quotes that I've read within the Upanishads, so therefore within the research that I have made uh, around this in and around this tradition in the book that I have written, which is called uh, To Open, which is about the history and research of this particular Tantrika lineage. Um, a lot of the ancient Tantric, uh, Tantrika women uh, or aesthetics uh, or female rishis of the Himalayas gave some of their orally taught teachings from this matriarchal tradition to those people who were writing down the Upanishadic verses. And I find that link very beautiful. It was a patriarchal time. It was men that were going to be doing the writings and most of the, the public teachings as as the matriarchy slowly faded away and the uh, tradition that I teach from had women that stayed in the Himalayas. One of my teachers is there. She comes from a long line of tantrikas who still teach the old ways and the more transient members of the group during the rise of patriarchy, travelled across Europe and ended up, um, the seat of the migrational part of the tradition is now in Lithuania. Interestingly enough, Lithuanian is the nearest modern spoken language to spoken Sanskrit. So if you hear someone speak Sanskrit and you hear someone speak Lithuanian, the translations are almost the same as a spoken language, which I find another mystery and also a very beautiful uh, commonality, seeing as our tradition ended up there. And as you know, I do hold Hatha Yoga and uh, that whole school, uh, Sivananda uh, Saraswati and Sachinanda Saraswati and Paramahansa Naranjananda. Saraswati, very close to my heart, as they were the ones who uh, adopted me as an elder and gave me my name and Diksha. So that's the six-part discourse on uh, the history of yoga, the essence and the history of yoga and the beginnings of, of the tantric history, which is, is good to know. It's very good to know as a yoga teacher where these things come from. If you teach meditation, it's good to know where these things come from. If you teach pranayama, it's good to know where these things come from. Or even if you're an advocate of simple karma yoga and the yoga of life, and in fact it's the shape of how we live and how we do a thing that makes us who we are as well as what we do. It's how we do that thing, whatever it is, whether it's hoovering, washing up, meditating, talking to our partners, how we do a thing is far more important um, than anything else. Where we live from inside, what motivates us to move forward as a practitioner of these sacred ways. This is no good practicing very eloquent meditation, pranayama to the letter and perfect posture if you're going to spend the rest of your day being 
mean and unkind and living from a selfish place inside of your body kind of makes yoga or tantra pointless in your life. So I would advocate ahimsa, harmlessness, harming none in thought, deed and word throughout your yogic and tantric life. Hari Om Tat Sat.